Thank you for tuning in to the Unjiggered Podcast. If you enjoy listening, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating on your podcast service of choice. Also, don't forget to like and tag us on Instagram at unjiggered underscore media. Thank you to everybody for listening, and now, on with the show. You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. This week, we have Michael Callahan on the show, owner of Barbary Coast, located in Singapore. We chat about moving from Hawaii to New York, having his big break in San Francisco, as well as the difference in between opening 28 Hong Kong Street a couple of years ago and Barbary Coast. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. My name is Michael Callahan, and I am the proprietor, as it says on the business card, but ultimately just a co-founder and a glorified busser for Barbary Coast. Thank you for finding the time. How's business going? Well, we just opened and things are good. We can't we can't complain. It's uh you know it's always difficult to open at the end of the year during the holidays. Opening mid December is not ideal, but thankfully we've had a lot of strong support from the community, um, and a lot of uh, friends coming to visit our staff because we have a great staff. So things have been good. It's actually a lot busier than we expected in the opening phase. So a lot of us are are really tired, but that's a being tired because we're busy is a lot better than being stressed and tired because we're not busy. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So tell us a bit more about yourself. Uh, when did you start bartending? So first of all, where are you from? I grew up in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, Hawaii is a small island surrounded by water with lots of Asian nationalities that love food. So, As Highlands do. <laughs> so I moved to Singapore, which is a small island surrounded by water with lots of Asian people that like food. Obviously, I have a theme. And when did you start working in hospitality? What was the thing that drew you to bartending? Um, it was a chance to feed my family. I was a young father. I had uh, my daughter at 17. And uh, in the U.S. You it, started early, eh? Yeah. yeah well, not, <laughs> not necessarily by choice. Um, but it was uh, the life that I was given and I was happy for it. And um, my good friend was a chef and I told him I needed a job. And he worked at a restaurant that also had a takeaway service on the side that did buffet. So uh, I started cooking. I was a prep cook for the buffet. And that was good for me because I got to work late nights. Uh, we did all of our prep late, late in the afternoon. We got a salary, of course, for that. But the good thing was at the end of the day, whatever buffet food didn't sell, um, we couldn't save it. So the staff got to take home. So I got into F&B mainly because I, I had money. It was a good, flexible schedule. Um, but also I got to bring home big bags of food for free. And that really helped when you're a young father, you don't have a lot of money, to get free food. Groceries are expensive. Uh-huh. So getting free food. Uh, really helped us out a lot. And so that was my first entrance into, into F&B. And at what stage did you get into bartending? Well, that came a few years later. I, I really fell into cooking. Um, I was fast. I was a good prep cook. Um, I started to become a really good line cook. And I thought, you know, I really have, I've got a thing for this. Um, my knife skills were really good. I was very proud of myself, like learning every day, learning every day. So I moved to New York. I followed my friend, my friend Peter, Peter Brown, uh, one of the most gifted chefs I ever knew and a good friend of mine who now has followed a new path in life. But he uh, he went to New York and was cooking. And then I needed to get out of uh, Hawaii because the economy was very bad. So I talked to the family and we said, okay, like let's go to New York where there's opportunity. At the time, this is the late 90s. So it was a dot-com year. So it was a lot of money in New York for F&B, mm-hmm. uh, catering especially. So I moved out there and started cooking. And um, one day, you know, like you do in New York, you have lots of different jobs. You have two or three jobs just to make ends meet. So uh, one day I was working at a restaurant and they said, hey, you know, we need somebody up front. So I went up front and uh, started bartending. And um, yeah, I never looked back after that. I was like, wow, the front is way better. You get to talk to the guests and like you, you know, you have fun and you're not sore and tired. And I still cooked after that for a while, but I quickly transitioned uh, into learning more and more. I got a job as a bar back in a nightclub cutting three cases of fruit and uh, just for garnish. Three cases lemon, That's three cases egg. lime. It was busy. We, we started at four o'clock in the afternoon. We let, ended at four in the morning, 12 hour shifts. It was my first uh, bar back job. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I had a great time doing it. And then uh, I got my first actual bar job, which was Two World Financial in the Winter Garden, uh, World Trade Center Complex, a place called Southwest New York, which was a Mexican uh, restaurant, or sort of Tex-Mex, if you will. And we were super proud of ourselves. This is uh, 99, um, 2000. And we had uh, made our own margaritas from scratch back in the 99, you know. Oh, that's a big deal. No, I mean, there was a lot of, there was already the craft scene was starting to slowly emerge in New York, but I wasn't aware of it. You know, Uh I I worked at a restaurant 
And for us to make our own sour mix, we were like, ooh, we make our own sour mix in 1999. Ooh. So that was my first bar job. And I was really, really proud. They put me in dispense, of course. Uh-huh. Uh, away, it was a separate station because we had a lot of seating. The restaurant was huge. So I learned because of the nightclub, but also there to be fast. Uh, and that was, that was my first thing I learned in bartending was how to be really, really fast. How to look at all of your tickets and plan and advance what, what takes more time, what I can bang out quickly. How to basically organize and expedite efficiently. How was the adjustment for you from uh, Hawaii to New York? Because it's a quite big different scene, isn't it? It is, um, but it was, it was actually not a big adjustment. It was just an adjustment in energy. I've always been a very hyper person, driven to challenge myself to new things. And uh, whereas Hawaii, I sort of outgrew, uh, New York afforded me endless opportunities to continue to challenge myself. Um, but aside from that, the diversity is about the same. Hawaii is very full of lots and lots of diverse uh, people and backgrounds and nationalities and lifestyles. And uh, Hawaii and New York are very similar to that. In terms of uh, bringing a family over, was that easy or challenging? No, they didn't come over, actually. They stayed in Hawaii, and I sent money back. It was uh, classic, uh, almost immigrant style, uh-huh, uh-huh. where I, I moved to New York, and I sent money. And I, I remember this was in the 90s, so I would go to pay phones and uh, call collect um, because, uh, you know, you would, it would be cold outside, and, you know, 1-800-CALL-ATT and collect call to the family back home. And uh, I would stand on street corner and talk, or sometimes there would be a there was a, a laundromat that had a payphone in the laundromat, and I would sit there because I could get my laundry done, or it was just it was warm, it was inside, it wasn't a street side, and I would call then, and um, yeah, it it was very hard, it was difficult, it was also challenging. I was a young man still, knowing that my family was far away and trying to make ends meet, and at the same time trying to figure out you know who I am. So mm-hmm. it, was, it was very challenging, but it was very rewarding. I wouldn't have ever changed it. Uh, never again. How long have you spent in New York? Only about two and a half years. And then after 2001, after uh, 9-11, uh, there, there was no more job for me. My job uh, was in the World Trade Center complex. Okay. So it was pretty much decimated. Uh, and then so after that, I sort of traveled around. I was actually on holiday when that happened. Um, I was sort of transient already. Whoa. So I ended up going, bouncing around the U.S., Midwest for quite a few years, bartending for college universities. And you, again, get very fast, make dollar tips. But if you make 500 drinks in a night, you make $500 dollar in tips. Yeah. That's crazy. So speed is all about speed and making guests have a good time. Then after that, finally made my way to San Francisco, which is where my career really blossomed. I learned all the, the nuts and bolts, the, the things that a lot of bartenders don't spend enough time learning. I learned almost 10 years of doing this in uh, New York and all throughout the Midwest, speed bartending. Uh, learning how to be fast, how to disengage, how to have a good conversation with people, but also make good drink and, and do it quickly. And it wasn't until much later in my life that I got into quote-unquote mixology. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't learn how to make my first Sazerac until I was 30. Seriously? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that uh, there are a lot of elements into bartending. Uh, we discuss this a lot uh, here. And like mixed co- drinks, like cocktails, is probably one of the smallest aspects of what makes a bartender, I think. So... I mean, I'm not surprised that, you know, it hasn't been an integral part of your skills at the beginning of your career. And um, so, San Fran, where did you work? Or do you have any specific place that you think you think shaped you more than others? There's two, really. Um, the first one was uh, Cafe de la Presse. It's still there. Um, you can still sometimes see it on movies and stuff filmed in SF. It's an absolute prime location. It's right on the corner, uh, right where the Chinatown gates are. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So my bar was a small bar, had six seats, but it was a big section. The bartender would have the six seats. Also, you would have three window tables that could seat three people. You had a seated section that had a four top and a two top and another two top. And you did dispense for the whole restaurant downstairs. Whoa. So one bartender was a server, a bartender and dispense. And I... I specifically always asked for the brunch shifts. I liked working Saturday and Sunday brunch because then I had my afternoons and e- evenings off. Uh-huh. And also, uh, the brunch crowd tend to spend a lot of money. Bloody Marys, mimosas, martinis. You know? so you're hungover and it, it uh, judges your cl- it was, clouds your judgment, right? <laughs> people just had fun. They were drink- they were sometimes still drunk when they came in. But that, that one was a place where I really got comfortable. And um, I really had a nice rapport with my guests, both the the... The tourists coming in and repeat tourists who come annually for conferences or whatever, and the locals. But it was there that I was actually discovered. Um, the restaurant there has all glass windows. So I s- literally stare at the Chinatown Gate all day. It's a fantastic location to bartend. Great money. Always busy. 
Um, and a guy would walk walked by. And one day this gentleman, Peter Riswald, um, one of my first mentors. So Peter Riswald walked in. I'd never met him before. And if you if anyone ever meets Peter, he's retired now, semi-retired now. Um, he's quite a character. He's very straightforward. He's very matter-of-fact. He's kind, but he's also not going to hold back his, his words. So he walks right up to me at the bar and he says, you know, uh, I'd like I'd like to meet you to discuss a job. And I was like, oh, you know, hi, hi, nice to meet you. I was, like, I was like, I don't think I've ever seen you in the bar before. He's like, no, I've never been in your bar before. And I said, I said, okay, well, I'm very confused why you want to offer me a job. He's like, yes, I want to offer you a job. I said, why me? He said, because I walked by this, he's opening a new restaurant. He was opening a new restaurant at the end of the block and Peter was the consultant for it. And so he, he told me, he's like, every day I walk down this street to go to the construction site and I look in the window and I see you in your bar. And he's like, I don't need to actually sit at your bar. I could see in the window that you're a good bartender by the way that your guests are engaged. I can see you laughing and smiling. I watch you moving and talking. I see you moving and talking at the same time. I see you ringing up the register and also doing dispense. And I see all of the people at your bar are staring at you, talking to you. And all of the servers waiting for their drinks are smiling. They're not yelling. They're not looking angry. They're not you know, waiting for their drink. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He said, so obviously you're very good at your job. Because the guests are happy, your coworkers are happy, and you seem happy. So, you know, this to me is the most important aspect of a bartender. Is I'd like to offer you a job. So I was interested. Okay. So I went to go meet him. And I went to go meet him. A new, a new restaurant being built was called Jitan. And uh, the owner of the restaurant, he met me and was like, no. I want a famous mixologist. And in San Francisco at the time, we had some big names. We had some really great talent. Bourbon & Branch had been open for a couple of years at this point. Um, there was a lot of uh, really, really good bartenders making names for themselves, and I was nobody. I was just a bartender at a restaurant. Uh, around what year was this? Well, I was 30, so what year was that? 2007, eight. Okay, cool. So Peter came to me and was like, hey, we want to give you a job. You have to meet the owner. So I met the owner, Frank, and Frank said no. He told Peter, no, I don't want to hire this guy. I want famous bartenders. And also another guy, uh, Carlos, Carlos Splendrini from Roma. Okay. And he spoke very little English. Really? In a very heavy accent. I found out later that it was very specific to where he was from in Rome. Uh-huh. Have a very, like, you know, almost urban accent. Okay, okay. Um, but anyway, so Carlo and I, he, Carlo spoke very little Eng- English um, and uh, was no, not known. And I also was not known. At least I spoke English. Yeah, that, that, it gives you a little bit of an edge, doesn't it? The owner went to Peter and was like, what the hell, man? Why? Uh, well, these are not famous bartenders. Like, who are these guys? And Peter said, no, you want these guys. And the owner said, why? He said, because these guys are hungry. They have all of the raw talents. You let me work with them. I get some trainers for them. But they have the skills that will make them and make your restaurant the hottest place in San Francisco. You just wait. And sure enough, Carlo and I, we were we were very hungry. We This was our one chance to like finally get proven that we can be not just normal bartender but like we can move into the ranks of these famous bartenders in san francisco at the time but i was young i wasn't the young one i was old i already 30 at that that age Mm -hmm. so we had a lot to prove we studied hard carlo and i we sat down uh, we spent all of our free time together memorizing drinks we had a couple great dom was our first trainer um he taught me my first sazerac i hope to have dom out here as a guest bartender celia and i are talking to him now trying to get him out um from san francisco so yeah we that was uh the beginning for me, that was the beginning of the cocktail bartending for me. And uh, so, first of all, how does this new challenge go for you? Like moving into like, as you as you describe it, like mixology or serious bartending kind of thing. How did, did that go for you? It was fascinating. I loved it. It was the first time in many years that I got a chance to bring back my culinary skills. I think that one thing that I had an advantage of was that I, I had spent three, four years of my life seriously studying um, how to be a chef. And at this time, in the late 2000s, you know, house-made ingredients was becoming huge. And I understood all of the technique. I knew all of the materials, all of the equipment, all of the technique. I was like, oh, I, this is very simple stuff. I used to have to do a lot of these same technique for cooking in the restaurant. Only now, it's just for, you know, uh, the ingredients are more liquid. They're, uh-huh. they're more viscous. They're, they're used in drinks now. So it was very, very easy and it was fun. It was fun to bring my knives back out again to start to uh, go to the market and source fresh ingredients. It was, I really enjoyed it. And um, because of my culinary background, I sort of focused heavily on bespoke cocktails. I started, it was hard for me to memorize all of the classics. And I still don't have the best um, sort of vocabulary when it comes to the all of the classics. But 
I'm very good because I think of my years of doing this, of, of deciphering sort of what a guest is asking for and making something that they want in that moment. Uh, uh, and that uh, came uh. from my, my many years of just being a bartender, but also of a culinary background. How long have you tended the bar there for? That bar, we were there for two years, two and a half years. Um, then uh, I started doing some light consulting, which I wasn't ready for at the time. I, um, I tried and I had some good ideas, but I wasn't, I didn't have the experience in being a consultant and how to implement, how to work with teams who are established. So I was hired to consult for a restaurant called Harry's and it was a place that was very established and the team was very much, they knew what they were doing. So for me to come in and try to tell them to change, uh, it was a big pushback. Uh, it didn't work. So after one month, they took my menu away and went back to the old menu. Oh, no way. Um, it's okay. Uh, yeah. I, I learned a lot about um, being a manager in that position. I had been manager before, but never a consultant uh, trainer, not a trainer. And that, that was my first big experience um, in, in training. And uh, at what point did Singapore call you over? And how did that go? Well, because of my many years, uh, this is interesting. Uh, so Carlo and I were hired at Jitan as equals. And uh, the idea when we were hired was that one of us would eventually move into the role of the bar manager. There was no bar manager. We would develop into one of us would naturally become the bar manager. And uh, Carlo got that role. And, you know, me being a bit older, thinking, wow, it's like my twilight years of my career. I was a little bit distraught. I said, you thought those were your twilight years. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you, you know, it ironic. Well, back in the day, you know, when I was started bartending in the '90s, bartending was a young man's game. Uh -huh. It was club bartending. It was high high volume bartending. The craft thing wasn't really around. There was no room for an old bartender, except for at an, an old pub where you maybe pour a whiskey and he tells stories about when you were in the war. Like uh, I wasn't that old yet. So <laughs> I was in the middle era where it's like, crap, there wasn't a lot of 30-year-old bartenders really around uh -huh. then. Um, thankfully, the craft scene opened up and allowed us to ex continue our career because <laughs> we're too old to do. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me be honest. I recently, last year, you know, I was uh, bartending at Employees Only. And uh, every night, Igor would come up to me and ask me, are you okay? And uh, I talked to Igor yesterday about this. He came by and I said, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. He's like, uh-huh. He's like, it's going to uh -huh. catch up. Well, you just wait, you just wait. Uh, and sure enough, yeah, it did catch up to me. So yeah, it was it was interesting times. So anyway, so Carlo, Carlo, yes, Carlo got the job as general manager, and I was I was kind of a little bit stressed, like, oh my god, I'm just going to be this uh, you know normal bartender for the rest of my life. But then I saw another opportunity. Since Carlo was the manager, then I had more, I had less responsibility. Mm -hmm. So I went and started doing competitions, and I entered every single competition that like if it was posted, I entered sometimes two a day. I entered every single competition. Seriously? Yes, every single one. I was always a good showman. Uh, that was from my many years of working clubs and working bars in New York and everywhere else. You know, you learn to be good and entertainer. Because back then, bartending, you made your money off of your, your how fun were you? The mm -hmm. guests went for bartender, not just drinks, but they went for bartender. And, uh, and I learned quickly that uh, competitions were not like normal bartending. And there was a formula for it especially in the early days, there was things that they were looking for. And I was lucky enough to identify those early on. And I started winning a lot of competitions. Actually, I, at one stretch, I won every competition that I entered. Um, and then my first big one was, the, of course, the, the infamous and forever remembered fondly and, and well-missed 42 Below Cocktail World Cup. That Cocktail World Cup, I mean, it sounds like a, an absolute banger of a competition, right? It was the best experience in my bar career all three times uh, and everyone and anyone who's ever been a part of either nationals but especially the global finals in New Zealand will forever look at it fondly and if you look at especially the 2010 11 and 12 years every crop of finalists went on to be like really well respected names in the industry um, or own really great bars like it, it really was a, a very fantastic competition for bringing together great talent and it was so comprehensive and they spent so much money in the preliminary rounds nobody since has really spent i think so much money and time putting together such a competition and then when you get to the finals it was i mean i don't think you could get away with it these days it was as celia uh, my business partner said yesterday trying to explain it to some people it was before 
the competitions were really practicing resp- uh, responsible drinking. Uh-huh. I mean, it was just messy. You got off the plane in New Zealand and they were just throwing vodka down your throat, like literally at the like baggage claim. They no were giving way. you laybacks like <laughs> you drink half a bottle of half a bottle of vodka after like a 16 hour flight immediately. And then they take you to a bridge, throw bungee cable and jump, throw you off the bridge. <laughs> yeah. And this is like day one this is hour one. Talking so. about Dutch courage. The, the, that competition was great, but I, so I started winning a lot of competitions, and that also uh, gave me a lot of media exposure. So the way I got here was my business partners uh, for 28 Hong Kong Street. They had lived in New York at the same time that I was in the late 90s, early 2000s, and they remember Milk and Honey and all of the bars, you know, and uh, they loved the drinks at those bars, but they moved to Singapore and they realized, crap, there's nothing quite like that. And they were not from the F&B industry at the time. They had another professional background, but they missed so much. And they also saw other people, their friends, also wishing had bo- like cocktail bars like that. So they set out to start out uh, their own cocktail bar here in Singapore. But they realized that they didn't know really how to do cocktail bar. So they put an ad out in uh, Gary Regan's, uh, rest in peace, Gaz, uh, put an ad out in Ardent Spirits. And um, there was an, a little... My friend reminded me, like, he said, hey, you know, there's these guys hiring. And all of us bartenders used to always look at job postings in the, in the classified ads, you know, in, in the, on the website. And my friend was like, oh, there's one for Singapore of all places. That sounds interesting. And I was like, oh, okay. So I went to take a look at it. And um, it had been posted for about a week. And I said, oh, fuck. They've already found somebody by now. Already, for sure, found somebody. But anyway, I, I sent a quick email. And it was a very simple email. It simply said, I don't believe that you can get to know a bartender through text or type. You have to really see them to understand if they're a real bartender and if they're the right bartender for you. I am in San Francisco. If you happen to be in San Francisco one day, look me up. And I didn't think anything of it. And then I got an email like a couple days later, and it was uh, my now partner, Paul. Uh, And Paul said, hey, I'm actually coming into San Francisco for one night for a meeting. Um, I'd love to meet you for coffee or a cocktail. So we met at Jatan. It happened to be my day off. So I met him at Jatan for a cocktail. Then we went across the street to Rick House and had a cocktail. And then he left. And then a couple of days later, um, Spencer, the other partner, called and was like, hey, we're really interested in, in you. So we talked for a couple of days. Then they called me back and they said, okay, it's between you and one other guy. I found out many years later who the other guy was. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that you guys didn't pick that guy. I'm not going to say who it was, but no, 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 you know, I found out who it was. And I was like somebody, I, an idol. I was like, oh, my God, huh? I cannot believe you picked me over that guy. But um, so I remember they called me and they said, hey, we want to offer you this job in Singapore to open a cocktail bar. Be the general manager and founding bartender. Uh, and I said, Okay. And he said, listen, you have 24 hours to decide if you want the job. <laughs> and I was on the phone with him. I said, I don't need 24 hours. I said, if you're going to jump, you're going to jump. If you're not, you're not. You know instantly if uh, you're going uh, to do it or not. If you have to wait, you're probably not going to do it. But actually, you know, let me rephrase. There was a step between that. When I was still talking to them before they offered me the job, I was also offered, as things happen, a really desirable national ambassador position for a brand with a lot of money. And they were going to send me to like movie premieres in LA and like I was going to have budget for suits. Like it was nice. Italian company. I'm not going to say which one. Okay, okay, okay. Um, and uh, they flew me to New York for Manhattan Classic, which was still a great cocktail festival at the time, MCC. And while I was there, I went to a hotel room and met the family that owned the brand. And they're like, we want to give you this job. It's only for six months, but it's uh, you have expense account. You will fly to New York, LA, all this stuff. I was like, wow, wow fantastic, right? And then at the same time, though, I was interviewing for this potential position in Singapore. And I didn't know if I was going to get either, but I felt I had a chance. And I was confused. I said, do I take the, the, the really fun, high-flying, fancy job that's only six months long, but it's guaranteed to give me lots of exposure? Or do I take the job that is unknown, could be total failure? The guys have never opened bar before in a place that I didn't even know really what the language was. Come on, I was uh, educated in the U.S., so... I, not the best ge- world geography. 2011, I had no idea. So I, I called my friend Naya White, um, who I had a lot of respect for. And Naya uh, was also a mentor. And I said, Naya, do you have time for a lunch? So we, we met during the lunchtime. And I said, Naya, I have these two jobs and I don't know which one to take. I, was like, I don't know if they're going to offer either. But if I get offered both, I don't know which one I should push. And he had uh, the, the second best piece of advice for me. The first was from Peter, um, which was... Uh, never hire somebody based on their resume. Hire them based on the hospitality spirit within them. 
you can always teach them how to be a bartender, but you can't teach them how to love giving service to people. That's mm-hmm. the first best piece of advice. The second was from Nea at lunch, and he said, okay, when you are an old man and you're going to die and you are thinking back on your life, which was the decision, which of the options do you think you would regret the most not trying? Uh-huh. And I said, well, you know, I always wanted to go and try Asia, and I, you know, I think I would regret at least not trying. Even if I fail, I think I would regret that one. And he says, okay, well, then that's your answer. He said, I can't make the decision for you. Just think about when you're an old man. Which one would you, you know, be most sad that you didn't at least try it? I, I said, okay. And then that's why I knew in 24 hours, I said, I need 24 seconds. I said, okay, let's do the job. And they said, do you have one week to move to Singapore? Can you move here in one week? Because they're already starting in construction. Um, I said, can you give me two weeks? And they were going to give me budget to to move over. I said, you, you, I don't need the budget for moving. Give me some of the money, and I use the money to go fly and see my daughter, and I spend time with my family before I leave the country. Uh huh. And they said, okay, okay, okay. So I went to go spend time with my family, and then everyone thought I was crazy. And they said, oh, my God, you're going to all the way to Asia. My brother thought I was crazy. But I moved to Singapore, 2011. I didn't tell my partners at the time that I had no idea how to open a bar from scratch. So there was a whole lot of terms that they were like using that I didn't know, and I was looking up on the Internet. like, what does this mean? What does this mean? <laughs> Um, and I kind of just put a lot of time and energy into it. And then that was the, the beginning. And it, as you know, it, it worked out. That's pretty cool. And uh, how was opening 28 Hong Kong Street? It was, uh, it was a challenge and it was fun at the same time. Um, we had a, a blank slate. We had a vision. Like They had a strong vision of what they wanted, um, my business partners. And after s- surveying the market, we had a pretty strong vision of where there was opportunity. And thankfully, I had a lot of experience in sort of what that vision was like and could be like. The hardest part about it was really sourcing. I knew that we needed a lot of products to execute that vision properly. And we had a big issue trying to find those products. There was no supply at the time. And it was really expensive. So what we ended up doing was getting very creative. And thankfully, my partners came from a non-F&B background. So they're more of a, a business background. And they said, well, there's in business, everything can be worked out. Mm-hmm. And so we, they ran the numbers and we figured out that we could actually, because Singapore is an open port, we could import our own spirits. As long as we pay the taxes and duty, we can bring whatever we want in. So we made a partnership with another friend of mine in the West Coast US um, that had a bottle shop and twice a month, well, as we got busier, but it was like once every couple months in the beginning, we would get uh, all of our products shipped over, everything shipped over. And it was actually cheaper for us to do that than it was to buy locally. So we bought a few things locally, like beef eater or whatever, but 90% of the entire bar program, including our well spirits, like our well bourbons, everything was shipped over under cover of night. And we didn't want anyone else to know where we were getting our products because our products were better than everyone else because we can get whatever we want from the US mm-hmm. and cheaper because uh-huh. we were not upcharging. We were just paying the tax and duty. We didn't have to pay a local importer's uh, 20%, exactly. 30%. Uh-huh. So we were actually getting cheaper. Because back then, price alcohol was really expensive too. The, the distributors back then were charging too much. So um, what a lot of guests at 28 didn't know at the time is every single one of the seats was covered in alcohol underneath. They were sitting on thousands of dollars of alcohol. And it was a very big challenge for me as a general manager because I had to make sure my stocks lasted because I'd not get another shipment for like two months. It was the only bar I've ever worked in my life and hopefully ever have to do again where if the drink was popular, too popular, I had to take it off the menu. Because it was it was burning through my stock, <laughs> so we had some drinks that we were like, "crap, we make this a special only because on the menu everyone's buying, everyone's buying, and we're gonna run out, we're gonna run out of product, and we don't get another shipment for one more month." Uh, so it was uh, same with the bottles in the back bar. We had very rare whiskeys and not really like rare, but just unique and different. Not super expensive, just fun and good whiskeys and rums. And guests would come in and try to buy a a bottle, and I said, "No, cannot. You can have maximum one shot each." So why, 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 why? I said, because if you drink it all tonight, I have nothing for you to come back next week. So I would force them to have one or two shots at a time. And sometimes I would hide the bottle in the back. And then it would make them try other bottles. I say, listen, I don't have any more of your favorite, but I have this other one. Try this one. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, I like this one. So it really encouraged people to try different things. And then the bottle Um, just magically reappeared. Yeah, and then a .4 (laughs) bottle showed up later on in the month. And and we had to do that all the time. And it it helped keep people come back. But um, it also made sure we didn't have completely empty shelves. It was was really interesting. But that lesson um, led to the the birth of Proof & Company. 
we realized that the biggest thing that Singapore needed wasn't a second 28. And everybody was asking, asking us after we started getting popular, oh, when are you building a second one? When are you building a second one? And we thought about it. But then we thought, well, why would we want to build competition for ourselves? So Proven Company became distributor for all of the alcohol that we were bringing in already for 28. So now we are already bringing in, we just make official company and we make available the, the good product for everybody else. So what happened was by default, um, instead of having competition with the rest of the bars in Singapore, they became our customers. So it was a really smart move on uh, with my partners and it was a lot of fun to build the distribution company. And after we got ROI at 28 and it was paid off and it continued winning awards and making money, we you know brought in new GMs and I moved over to Proof. Uh, and yeah, that was that, was that journey. But How long have you worked behind the stick at 28? I was there for the first two and a half years. Two okay. years. Uh, we hit ROI just, I think, a week before our uh, projected date. So we had our projected date, and I remember Paul was very, very, very happy about that. He's, uh, he's really good with numbers, and he estimated um, we would be done paying everything off in uh, two months' time, or sorry, two years' time. And we paid it, it, it off uh, just like literally like maybe one month or like two or three weeks before the estimated target date. And that was both a testament to Paul's ability to forecast, but also our team working very hard to hit our targets every month. So I stayed and then about another six months or so, so about two and a half years. And then uh, we transitioned over. Zdenek joined us. He started helping out a lot. Joe joined us, took over the reins as the GM. And then Z and I moved over to Proofing Company, always staying involved with 28. It's our, it's our home. It's, our, it's the birth of all of the companies. But yeah, and we had to move on. And, then, and the shop needed it. The shop needed new, new leaders to teach it new teams, new things. And uh, we, we, had, we were lucky to have some great GMs and some great staff throughout the years. Are they still involved with Proof and to what degree? No, no, the team are still family. Um, I st we still do a lot of work uh, where we share consulting contacts with each other because I was with them for so long and did consulting. You know, in the beginning, it was, uh, I think I might have been the first employee. I don't know if the partners actually were ever considered employees. They're the owners. <laughs> I don't know exactly. if owners are employees, but I think <laughs> sure. I, I was, uh, me and Z, Z and I, I should say. I remember in the very beginning, it was just Z and I uh, and then the partners. And uh, Z and I would get the accounts, we would get the orders, we would um, box up the bottles, we would write the label, um, we would drive the truck and we would take turns, one of us drive, one of us run the, the bottles to the shop and, and, and get the chop from the invoice. Like we did everything, it was just us. And then it grew to what it is now, you know, numerous countries, so many employees. Um, it's just really fantastic to see where the team took it. I departed, I think it was three years ago now, um, after the tour, uh, the after the Hong Kong market was established, because for me I really like opening new markets, um, and the focus after Hong Kong was China. I didn't really want to move to China. Um, it wasn't a good fit for me, and I was burned out. At that point, it would been uh, six years of nonstop, very hard work. You know, two years to get twenty up and running, and you know it's a long, long job. Yeah, it is. And then also the same with with uh, with proof. It was uh, it was it was our life. It was a fun life, and it was our family, and it was a beautiful family, but it was also nonstop. So after that time, I, I took time off and went back to see my, my daughter was in high school, and I had been traveling and not with her too much. So I, I took sabbatical, and I spent one year with my, my dad and with my daughter, and it was nice. You know, drive her to school, like just be a dad. It was great. Um, we reconnected again, got to have a good time. We, we started a little soda company in, in Ohio where she was making uh, sodas and stuff using my bar background and cooking background. Oh, that's cool. So, you know, things like that. And I was going to leave. I was done. I was done with F&B. And Celia dragged me back. Yeah? Yeah. How did, does that feel? It felt good. I didn't. I thought I was done. I thought I was like, you know, I've accomplished everything I wanted. I had fantastic teams. We built great companies. Um, everybody was very supportive. We learned a lot. We grew a lot. We, you know, we helped develop markets all over Asia. We helped to set up bartenders to have real careers uh, and to help local bartenders to have respectable careers so that their family would be supportive. We did all of these things. I thought, you know what? I'm. I, it's time for me. I'm young enough still to do a, a new chapter in my life. So I was going to leave and get back into uh, auto mechanics, which I love. I love restoring old, actually old Vespas and Lambrettas. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm a two-stroke guy. <laughs> um, always have been. So I was going to, to stop and do that. And then Celia called me because I've had a long history of Sherry. 
I've loved sherry wines for a long time, very long time, since Jutan days. We had 23 sherry by the glass. Whoa, and that's this, crazy. And this was in the late 2000s. This is way before like sherry was a big thing. You had enough people drinking it? Uh, yeah, because bartenders know how to sell it. Yeah, that's, that's true. Anyway, so Celia was setting up a... She was speaking a seminar at Tales of the Cocktail on sherry. And she asked me to be on her panel. So I said, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the U.S. anyway. I was not far. I was actually like maybe a couple hours drive away from New Orleans. So I said, okay, 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 fine. So I said, I'll come back just for this. And I went back to Tales just for the seminar. And I forgot how much I love the industry. Uh-huh. I saw the friends. I went to see the bar pop-ups. I forgot about how, because I had been away now for almost one year. And I forgot how much I love our industry. I said, fuck, okay. So then I was coming back to Singapore. And Paul from Proof said, hey, Michael, are you back? I said, yeah. I said, hey, man, do you have any uh, bandwidth for some consulting projects? Because Proof is so busy. We cannot, there's too many people asking us. We need some help. So I was like, yeah, sure. So I start independent consultant just to make some money. Uh, and then I was talking to Celia and she said, I want to move to Singapore and to Asia. I said, hey, I really need some help on this consulting thing. There's a lot of jobs. And everybody want to work with Proof. Everybody want to work with me. It's like we, we have a lot of, a lot of opportunity. I could really use help. And she's really good. I don't know if you know Celia. is amazing. Yeah, of course. One of the best in the world at what she does. Um, so she's, yeah. So we, she moved over. We started Compound Collective uh, about three years ago. It was really hard in the beginning. It was just us two. Now we have Roman Fulton, who's our head of education, and moving on to some other roles this year. It's very exciting growth for him in the company. And yeah, we just started banging out a lot of, a lot of consulting. So that sucked me back in. And then Celia and I were both like, you know, we are building all these bars for people. And uh, we have all these great ideas. We should finally, we should build one more for us. Just one that is everything we love about bars. And so we, we, we couldn't figure out if we wanted to have a casual neighborhood bar or um, a more elegant sort of experience bar. So because we're crazy, we built both. So the Barbary Coast is two bars. Um, it really is two separate concepts housed in, in, in one building with the deadfall downstairs being much more casual. I got a fantastic compliment um, from a guest downstairs last night, they were like, this really reminds me of Shady Pines. And I was like, that is like, I hope that people could look at us like that one day. That's like so I would, cool. I would absolutely be honored if people make that, like that comparison. I hope we can live up to it. Cause that is a great bar for just a place that you love to go. Like yeah. it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be um, gimmicky. It's just a great bar. So that, that felt really good. And then upstairs couldn't be any, any more different. Uh, but at the same time, it's they're both made with love. So yeah, yeah. So Celia and I decided let's do this. Roman has been a big help uh, doing it, and we had great staff. Every one of our staff are rock stars on their own. So yeah, it's been a hard, hard journey. Um, but here we are. We're open now. Let's see where it goes. So talk to us a bit uh, about the brief. What's the focus? If there is any focus. So the focus downstairs is very simple. It's um, something I think, and Celia actually, both of us think very much Singapore could use. It's not that it's missing it. It's not that other people aren't doing it well. It's just that um, it's a style of bar that is very matured in the U.S. and Australia and, and also to some parts uh, in, in the U.K. as well. And that's a neighborhood bar. It's what some people refer to as a walk-up bar. It's a place that, like for example, downstairs in the deadfall, uh, when we unlock the door, we're open. I'm still like polishing glasses. I'm still filling the ice. I'm still juicing the, the, the lemons and the limes. But somebody can walk up at any time. Are you open? I say, yeah. If I'm here, I'm serving beer. And, that, and that's the idea here is that it's really about, like when I first started bartending and when a lot of us first started bartending, it's really about the guest and the people. So the downstairs bar is 100% just about enjoying coming here for a drink, unwinding with your friends, or if you're not with friends, you always have a friend at the bar. And if you want a good cocktail, we can make it. Now, if you want to have more of like a, a rowdy dive experience, for sure, go to Skinny's. Um, but if also you want to have a rowdy, uh, more mature experience, for sure, go employees only. We kind of sit somewhere in the middle Okay. Uh, for downstairs. Uh, whereas upstairs is really what we wanted to do is show people what a great... In like if, if you can find every component of a bar and find dial it up to 10 is as close to perfect as you can make it and nobody's perfect everybody is dropping the ball here we can always be better everyone can be better and we strive to be better always but what is the the best we could possibly offer in interior and 
workflow in um, room space layout and design in staffing diversity of personality and talent but mainly also in product like uh, without fetishizing it the cocktails upstairs that celia created she is an absolute genius um, and she's quiet about it. And I, I sometimes wish that she wasn't so. She deserves to be much more famous than she is, but she prefers to let the drinks speak for themselves. I, for the first time in almost any of my projects, um, I don't think I made a single drink on that menu. Seriously? Not one. You have to recognize when you have a team where the talent lies. And when it comes to the drinks, Celia is untouchable. Um, her understanding of balance and of flavors, she uses things because they deserve to be together, even if no one else, or very few people at least, think that that would work. She knows in her crazy mind that it will. And she puts these ingredients together not because it's she's trying to impress someone or to confuse them with random ingredients. Like uh, You see a lot of these bar menus in the world. They use rare ingredients just to kind of write it so it looks good, right? Yeah, they, of course. They, mm -hmm. But she actually does it for a purpose. And uh, similar, her laboratory is full of every ingredient, every equipment you could ever want in any science lab or bar, but there's no window to the back. There's no showing the equipment. We don't talk about it. She says in, in her own words that, you know, it's about the drink and the technique and the process used to make the drink is only as good as the drink is good. And we don't need to focus on how the drink was made. We only need to focus on is the drink made good? Is it made well? So yeah, uh, upstairs is, uh, and, and where I come in upstairs is really the, is very American actually, <laughs> is about the hospitality <laughs> and engagement with the guests and, and workflow. So we've divide and conquer, right? Uh, instead of us both overlapping, she really is the heart and soul of the beverage program. Uh, and I work very much to ensure that the guests want for nothing and are, they leave almost on a cloud if possible. And um, in terms of spirits, do you have any specific focus or do you just get what you like? Like things that you think are delicious and they should be in a bar? Yeah, that was a tight focus on purpose. Uh, you see a lot of bars um, have a lot of bottles. 28 has a ton of bottles. Inventory sucks. Um, God, I, I feel bad for Manhattan. Manhattan must... Yeah, yeah inventory there. Let's not even paid. talk about Atlas. Atlas. Yeah, oh, geez. That, I don't even know. You must have a small army to do that inventory. So for one, as a manager, we didn't want to have to have long inventory nights. But two, we also wanted guests to drink all of the bottles. So we have a very, very tight selection. For example, it's we are not shunning vodka. Vodka is very important. But downstairs in the deadfall, we have three. Mm -hmm. Upstairs in the ballroom, I think we have a total of five. Uh, rums, we maybe have 20, 25 max. Uh, a lot of our spirits are skewed towards American. Well, not just American, but North American, I should say, where you have a lot of rums, you have agave spirits, but mostly American whiskeys. We have some decent amount of scotches, but we really wanted it to have a skew towards American um, or historically American. Uh, some cognacs as well, things that were consumed in the 1800s in, in, in New Orleans and such. But we wanted it to be you not really unique, but different. So so we wanted people to explore, but we didn't want it to be overwhelming. So really, if you go to the back bar upstairs, it's actually surprisingly small. It's beautiful, but it's surprisingly small because we want people to actually drink. And if you have too many bottles, they're never going to drink through them all. You're going to mm -hmm. have a bottle that sits there unopened for five years. Yeah. Or even worse, it's partially open for five years and now it's oxidized. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we just specifically made it a tight selection so that we can help guide people. But also there was enough that people could try things, but not so much that it's uh, overwhelming or unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And uh, how was the process of opening a bar here in Singapore for the second time? Have you noticed any differences in between when you did it the first time with 28 to this time? Well, staff's a lot more expensive. Oh, yeah? Yeah, definitely the staff now know their value um, and talented staff are definitely not cheap and you have to be competitive. So you have to have a good salary and you have to good, have good compensation. So definitely finding staff, it's definitely a staff's market. Like there's more bars than there are good staff. So mm -hmm. they can go anywhere they want. So you have to make sure that you're, you're A, you're a good company to work for, um, good corporate culture, but also a good compensation package for the staff. So that's, that's definitely a lot different than it used to be. Um, licensing has become difficult too. Okay. Uh, there's so many uh, bars now that the government is slowing it down. They're not giving as many licenses as a lot of people will tell you. Getting a 3 a.m. or uh, late night license is is almost impossible in certain neighborhoods because there's a saturation point. Mm -hmm. So it it took us six months to get our license. Better six yeah. months is a long time. And how difficult was to find the venue? 
Well, Celia and I were very patient. We knew that the concept that we built, Barbary Coast, needed to be in a historical uh, district in Singapore. It had to be in, in Boat Key or somewhere down in this neighborhood where um, this story originated um, for Singapore, at least. Um, there was these types of bars here in the 1800s, and it wouldn't make sense for us to have it in Holland Village. So it had to be here, but Boat Key is small. It's not very big and there's not a lot of property and it doesn't come up often. So we waited almost the whole three years that we were in Compound Collective. We knew we wanted to open a bar and we waited and we waited until the right location popped up. This one, unfortunately and fortunately, was far, far bigger than we anticipated. We wanted to have the deadfall be a little tiny bar in front and the ballroom be the main bar in back. Almost like uh, 20% of the space was deadfall, uh, just a little tiny far bar. And then the rest was ballroom. It turned out that now Deadfall is as big as 28 is and ballroom is even bigger. So we have two full bars. So this space came up. It was too gorgeous to pass. It was just freaking big. And is it difficult to like get it once you get the property? or Because in, in cities like London, for instance, there's a bit of a challenge. Like You find a spot, but then before you actually get it, you have to go through... A very very long procedure and and if you're unless you're an established business it's very difficult for you to get the property is it the same thing here in singapore i think yes there is a lot of different organizations you, you need to work closely with um singapore's government is very efficient but it's also very fair um the way that they have broken it down is you need to get the uh ura who are in, tr in control of all the land um but especially especially in historic districts this is a historic building in a historic district so it's a lot of licensing and stuff that you have to make sure. Like we ha we couldn't cut into the floors. We couldn't cut into the walls. Um, it's a historic building. And we have to respect that. And I'm glad that there's organizations that protect the history of Singapore for generations to come. That being said, it's a lot of paperwork and procedure and a lot of meetings um, to get through. And yes, uh, like you mentioned in London, uh, if you do have an established uh, track record, it is easier. Had we not had my many years here in Singapore, and um, Celia and I's uh, patience and our landlord's patience, when we found the place, he took it off the market and didn't charge us rent for six months so that we oh, could really? get the licensing. Um, he believed in our project and he believed in us. But again, that also came down on the fact that we have a great resume together mm -hmm. and I have a long history in Singapore. So the government was willing to give us a chance. I don't think many other people could have pushed through um, because the government is so tight these days in this district. Um, it's starting to loosen up, but you have to really, you can't just go down and say, hey, I want to open a bar. You have to bring suit and tie, suited and booted, presentation. You'll come prepared to to plead your case. And it's good. Otherwise, we would have a bunch of crap bars in this neighborhood, right? So I, I applaud the URA and um, SBF, which is a police force, for um, making it difficult and, and forcing us to show that we can be good partners for the community. Difficult, but fair. Very like fair. The way you yeah, it. very difficult, but very fair. Uh, are you happy to be back in the game then? That's a hard question. <laughs> Emotionally, I am. Physically, I am not. I am dead. Oh, yeah. Um, entrepreneurship is not easy in any industry. And the opening of a bar is exhausting. Uh, so lots of... Right now, we're still waiting for some of our staff to join us who are finishing up their tenureship at other jobs. You know, It's very, very respectful, as you should in any position in the world, to uh, give your former boss notice of one month or more. So right now, there's a lot of us who are pulling extra jobs. So mm -hmm. I, in the first month, I was here uh, for two weeks in a row, 20 hours a day, 9 a.m. till 5 a.m. Yeah, that sounds excruciating. I'm over 40 years old. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it doesn't get any, as uh, Igor used to call me the rusty nail because I'm always the oldest one in the bar. Uh, and also, I'm old enough to remember how to make that drink. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember when people <laughs> used to order it. So anyway, uh, it's, it's, it's emotionally, it's, it's super awesome to take a look back and say, wow, here we have this, another great opportunity, a fantastic bar, great team. It's just super rad. Um, but physically it's, it's very taxing. You have to learn to, to have your work-life balance. And as you get older, it gets a lot harder. Because you've been in the industry for uh, probably longer than, than the majority of the hosts that we had here at our um, podcast, what are the tricks that you use in order to have this sort of uh, work-life balance? Like how, how do you carve yourself some time? I know that during openings is impossible as you described it, but on a day-to-day -day basis, what would what, what you do in order to make sure that you have this time for yourself? Well, I think the biggest thing for anything in life, but especially in F&B is, um, and I, I like to say this, I think Z and I both, Zidanek and I both say this, there's, there's no crying in bartending. Um, you know, we, we have to come to work and love it. And, and that's the thing that's, Unlike most jobs, is you you don't get this sense of joy 
immediately return to you from your coworkers and from your clients and a lot of jobs. Here, no matter how stressed out we are, no matter how hard the night is, no matter how much we worry about finance or staffing or whatever it might be, um, the day that the moment the bar opens, the first guest, we can make their day better. And then you've got to smile and appreciate the fact that we are, no matter how stressful things are, we have an ability to make a difference in other people's lives. Every moment, every day, every drink, we can make somebody's life a little bit better. And there's a power in that. And we have to appreciate that. And as Celia always tells me, we need to celebrate the, the little wins. Um, and for me to manage throughout you know, these hard, hard days of opening, and also sometimes you have good days and bad days in any business, is just to constantly remind myself to keep one foot in front of the other. And you know, there is happiness around the corner. But you're not going to get there if you don't push through. And too many people, they, they stress. The harder things are, I think the less stress I allow. And I think some of the people that I've surrounded myself, uh, I have a lot of respect for, do the same. When things get very stressful, we don't throw down the tins. We come together as a family and we say, okay, we're going to get through this. And then when we get through it, then we die. <laughs> but until then, we have, a, we have a challenge in front and we have to rise to the challenge. So I think uh, it's time for our final question, Uh-oh. which we ask everyone. <laughs> yeah. If you could choose your very last drink, what would that drink be? Hmm. That's a good question. Last drink. You know, for me, drinking is some people will always ask me, uh, what is your favorite drink? And I always tell them it's situationally specific. Sometimes I want to have a bottle of rose in a bathtub and you leave me alone. I cry. Sometimes <laughs> we've all been there. We've all been there. Sometimes it's a beer with your friends and sometimes, uh. you know, it's a cocktail. But if I had one drink, I think what alcohol does, what food does, food and beverage does more than anything else, if done correctly, is it elicits a sense of nostalgia. It brings you back to a different place, a different time, um, a place of happiness or maybe sadness. Um, but it, it brings you back. It brings you somewhere. It transports you. And I think for me that would be um, the beginning days of 28 when I started to see the bar become successful. And I started to see, wow, look at something we actually built. That was the first program, the first team that I trained from the ground up um, and built from the ground up. With the help of my partners and the help of our team, we built something fantastic that we never expected to be so good. And I remember early on, my favorite drink then was uh, a bottle that I freaking wish that I kept a few because I was recently looking it up online and the cost is too much. <laughs> but it was uh, not a very rare bottle, but it just happened to be a flavor that I will always think of from that era and that was the 2011 limited edition four roses single barrel cast strength that's a very specific very very specific that's a cool uh, cool answer though yeah it it, uh, it was what i on the end of a hard day i would get a little tiny bit of that um sit down usually after a very busy night we had a great night the guests had a good time the staff had a good time uh, we're singing our closing songs. Each of my staff, we always have closing songs. We'd sing together all loud. The staff may be having a beer. And I would sit down as a, you know, I don't want to say this as a, because I think it's, we're always one family, but like almost like a proud father. And sit down and have my, you know, my, my nice whiskey and, and just smile. Again, celebrate the little wins. Very cool. Very cool thought. Thank you very much for finding the time. Uh, this was awesome to talk to you. Very cool stuff. Well, it was good to relive those memories. So thanks for having me. And uh, man, I can't wait to, to hear what it actually sounds like. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Michael. We are unjigged underscore media on Instagram. And you can follow our personal accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself, and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.